I have a question for you all this morning. <clears throat> How do you approach God? Uh, Y'all are here this morning for, for church and everything, but uh, individually and collectively, how do we approach God? Well, do you acknowledge God? In uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so I asked this this morning, how do we approach God? Do we come with expectations and hopes? Do you know that God is holy? As we read through the scriptures, it tells us um, God is holy. Psalm 99, that's the refrain, um, the chorus of that psalm. It's repeated three times. He is holy. The Lord our God is holy. Well, understanding the holiness of God and then understanding that we ourselves are sinners, um, maybe the church, maybe we ought to start issuing insurance policies at the door uh, for sinful people coming into the presence of a holy God. Uh, so, how do you approach God? Do we come with humility, fear, gratitude? That's what worship is. The good news of the message of the holy God is wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this morning I want to share with you from the wisdom literature and it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about wisdom. And it tells us very plainly, repeatedly, in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of James, chapter 3 starting with verse 13, has this to say, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil." For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So in the ancient world, there were three things that uh, the ancients valued above everything else. Power, wealth, and wisdom. And so we want to look at wisdom today. It's an important word in Scripture. And it's used to represent the discernment of good and evil. It's prudence, or wise decisions in secular matters. 
It can apply to the skill in the arts, which means craftsmanship. So um, if people are good working with metal or wood or precious jewels or cloth or any of the other things, paints, uh, any other the artwork kind of stuff, craftsmanship, they would be said to have, be wise in those, in those fields. So the thing about wisdom in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, is that it's, it's moral rather than intellectual. Oftentimes we think about the wise man as the person who, um, usually we think they're real old with long white beard and they're, um, um, you know, oh great, so-and-so, what will the future hold? And he's the wise person will tell you what's going to happen or, or what you need to do in a situation. And um, oftentimes we want to know what the future holds and we don't get a clue. Um, it's enough for us to know how to live in the present day. And if we live today well, tomorrow will take care of itself. So, you know, you get the idea of the, um, uh, the way the media presents it. You know, this guy is out in the middle of this wilderness, way up high in the mountains, and there's a howling storm going on. He's clawing his way up. And here in this cave is this old, shriveled up, withered old guy, and he's sitting there, and he's supposed to be the wise guy, you know? Well, if he's so wise, what's he doing living up in that place? <laughs> and then they come down from the mountain and look around at the world, and you think, maybe he's pretty wise after all, the way things are going. But from scriptural viewpoint, um, wisdom is moral rather than intellectual. It has to do with right and wrong. It's the adaptation of what we know into what we do. Another way of putting it would be Wisdom is skill in living, living in a way that pleases God. So wisdom becomes sound counsel in living whole and worthy lives in the context of God's creation and in response to Christ's redemption. So it's not so much information, but it's a discernment, interpretation, and application. It's how you live your life. Some of us do it well, others of us not so well. So it has to do with personal relationships. The book of Ecclesiastes um, puts it this way. You all know in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there used to be a folk song about it, to everything there is a season. Here's the chorus. Turn, turn, turn. Yeah, that's the one. And... Uh, then it tells you there's a time for this and a time for that, and he goes through this whole long list of things, covers most of life, and he says there's a time and place for everything. And the conclusion there at the end of chapter 3 is that, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's, the things that he's listing there are opposites. Time to be born, a time to die time to plant, time to uproot. And he goes down through that whole long thing. These are opposites. And he says there's a time and a place for every one of these things. And the wisdom comes in knowing what time it is. So in Ecclesiastes chapter five, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, this I think is a pretty good definition. Chapter 8, starting with verse 5, Ecclesiastes. He's talking in this context about obeying the, the commands of a king. But he says, Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, 
And here's the definition. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. And so the, um, the preacher or the teacher, he's, that's what Ecclesiastes is, Kohelet, uh, the teacher, um, through his experience of trying everything, he comes to this conclusion. The wise in heart knows there's a proper time and a procedure for everything. And there is a time, as Ecclesiastes 3 said, a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And so he's got these opposites here. And the wise heart knows the proper time and the proper procedure for each event or each season of a person's life. It's beautiful in its time and in its place. If you take it out of its context and you try to have it in a time which is not supposed to be its time, it becomes ugly and it becomes harmful and it becomes disruptive. And so the wisdom is practical living. How do I live today? doing the proper things at the proper time. The wise in heart will know the difference. The scriptures uh, struggle, though, with where to find this wisdom. Um, Job 28, he and his wise friends are struggling to come to terms with where true wisdom can be found. So they ask in verse 20 of Job 28, Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, Only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. It goes on down, and so in verse 28, this is the conclusion. Where can wisdom be found? And he said to man, God did, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun, that means avoid, run from, evil, that's understanding. And so all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, comes to the conclusion that wisdom dwells with God alone. He alone is the one who has it, and he's the one who gives it to us. So the good news comes in James chapter 1. And it's just the opposite of how this world began. Um, you remember um, in the Garden of Eden, God had created everything good. Good according to God's definition of the term, uh, which meant that it was perfect. And he had created Adam and Eve in perfection, um, in his image and likeness. They were like God. They were godly people until sin entered the picture. Now, it's interesting that in Genesis chapter 3, it is a lust for, a strong desire for, a wisdom apart from God that led to sin. And all the rest of Scripture tells us these two kinds of wisdom are still with us. We face them every day. Wisdom from the world and the wisdom that comes from God. Or another way would be, say, would be to say a wisdom that comes from the serpent or the wisdom that comes from God. 
and we all live our lives in the context of one or the other. And so Eve, because she wanted to be more godly than God, uh, chose to take of the one thing that God commanded them not to do. Everything else, I mean, the commandments, all the commandments in the world, it wasn't a whole list. It wasn't, it wasn't a whole list. One negative command, lots of positive ones, one negative command, and that's the one she broke. Now, the more sinful we get, you ever noticed, the more rules start coming? So if we're in a church, and a church has a whole list of rules, what does that tell us about us? <laughs> Oh, we must be in really bad shape. We need all these guidelines here because we can't be trusted to make our own decisions here about what's right and what's wrong. But it's not about rules and regulations, is it? That's not the point. The point is about the relationship. So Eve decides she wants to find a wisdom on her own through trying out things that she was not supposed to. It's a funny thing, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes did. He went around and tried everything and he, and he came to the conclusion that everything this world promises you only leads in disappointment and death. Frustration and emptiness inside. And so his conclusion, writer of Ecclesiastes, is fear God and serve Him. That's the whole duty of man. And he says in that we find fulfillment. James puts it this way in James 1, starting with verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. There you are. So Eve, if she wanted to get wiser... All she had to do was ask God. There would have been no sin, no breaking of the commandments, uh, no bringing all the negative things upon their life. would have saved her and us a lot of suffering and pain and sorrow. And we look at her and we think, stupid woman, why did she do something like that? But then I look at my life and I say... I'm no better than she is. She knew the Word of God. She knew the will of God. She knew God, walked with Him every day. What about you? What about me? Do we know Him? Do we walk with Him? Do we know right from wrong? So who is wise and who is not? If we ask God, He will help us provide what we need. So what does that mean, skill in living and to know God and all of that? It means that it's talking about an everyday practical relationship with God. Wisdom is not intellect. It's a, an ability to see right from wrong and to make the right choice. That comes not out of information. Otherwise, we'd live in a perfect world, wouldn't we? We've got so much information now, we don't know what to do with it all. We can't process it all cannot possibly deal with the overload of information that's coming into us. The mind, the computer up there is not big enough uh, to incorporate it all. Um, so, and as we go through our lives today, we become more and more skilled technologically, more and more informed, 
less and less personal in our relationships with people. And there's no wisdom in that. Now, a computer is a fine thing, but it doesn't give you a lot of comfort. You know, it can't give you a lot of companionship. Uh, it can only give back what's been put into it. That's it. So we're, we're good on the technology, but we're weak in the relationship. So wisdom actually boils down to everyday living, how we live our life, how we respond to the people around us. Most importantly, it begins and is fulfilled and ends in our relationship with God. Um, a lady named Kathleen Norris, uh, as I was reading her book, brought my attention to... Um, uh, this weird word. It's called quotidian. Uh, I may even pronounce it wrong. I don't know. Quotidian. It's daily, recurring, um, ordinary. It's what we repeat over and over and over again in our life. So the whole point about wisdom is you have to start where you are, not where you wish we were. So we, we, we've got to start looking for blessings to come from unlikely everyday places like Galilee you remember uh, Nathaniel was sitting there and Philip comes up and starts telling him about Jesus and he says well, where's this guy from he's from Nazareth Nazareth up in Galilee Nazareth can anything good come out of Nazareth it's a little border town up there and it's small and it's you know these are the Provincial people, the people out in the out in the boondocks out there, kind of the out of the way places. Well, if you live there, it's not out of the way, is it? It's in the way. So, and so there aren't any out of the way places as far as God is concerned. Uh, so this ordinary everyday things, and not any spectacular event, e events. We're always looking for something special, something out of the ordinary. Um, we look around and we think, how boring does my life get, doing the same thing over and over again. But we need to learn from the, from the small ones. So the small ones come up, and you pick them up, and you toss them up in the air, and you catch them. Do it again. You toss them up, you catch them, and they're laughing, and they're great. It's great. They trust you. They're secure. They're safe. But, man, this is fun. Do it again. Do it again. They will wear you out. They will not get tired. And you will get tired, but they will not. The repetition is the thrill. So I wonder about us in our lives. How come, as we go through our everyday lives, we've lost the thrill of living, the rhythm, the repetition, the security that comes from knowing this is where my life is. And we've lost the mystery and the miracle of what that is. So, God uses everyday objects to reveal his message to the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah was walking in the marketplace. And um, back then, like they do in third world countries today, um, because there's, depends on how far back you go, no refrigeration and maybe no electricity, so um, you go to the market every day. And you buy what you need for that day. So Jeremiah is doing, going about his daily tasks. 
He's walking through the marketplace and the Spirit of God begins to speak to him and says, what do you see? Oh, I see a basket of figs. And God gave him a message, a word from the Lord for himself and for his people based on a basket of figs. When was the last time you were going in the grocery store and you're looking at the cheese and God spoke to you? <laughs> so that's kind of the ordinary everyday things. Where did the parables of Jesus come from? Uh, when he told the parables, he was standing there, uh, look at the lilies of the field, and they're out there. They're the lilies right there. Look at the birds. There they are right there. Everyday ordinary things that Jesus to took and used to be a new and fresh revelation of the presence and the provision of God. I didn't even notice. I didn't even realize he was right here. And so it's these living each day, doing each task in the presence of the Lord. That's the core of our salvation. So we read this morning in our call to worship, God is the God who daily bears our burdens. Every day. Every day the invitation of Jesus comes. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest today. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. And we can live in that peace. God bears our burdens every day. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we ask? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So these are habits, holy habits, things that are part of the discipline of a Christian's life. It's a wise way to live. And Jesus told the disciples in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, once? Is it a one-time experience? Luke says, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul says, I die every day. And if we're going to walk with the Lord, that's going to be saying no to self and yes to him. And so often we look at that as a negative So there's a hot stove uh, with an open flame there and your small child comes and starts to put his or her hand in it and you say, don't do that. And she or he has a choice to make. I can do what my mom and dad tell me or I can do what I want to do and I want to see what that is. <laughs> and so we look at our life that way and we say, well, self-denial, that's a negative thing. You know, what a drag. God doesn't want me to have any fun. Uh, I'm being oppressed here. I'm not being able to express my free will here, not knowing that that's going to hurt you. And so the, the denial of self, what that does is that frees us from guilt, from shame, from a lot of sorrow, and a lot of our suffering. 
Not all of it, but a lot of it. And it's a protection. It's because God loves us that he tells us these things. If you keep going that way, you're going to kill yourself. And you'll hurt everybody around you in the process. So you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him every day. But the book of Lamentations, and I think it's important to remember that this is in the middle of Lamentations, five funeral songs that Jeremiah composed while he's sitting in the midst of the rubble and the smoking ruins and the stench of the burning flesh around him for the dead people. Those who made it barely are going into slavery and captivity in a far country. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah is sitting there, freshly released from prison himself, And he writes this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And so when we deny ourselves, that's what we get. The compassions, the love, the mercy, the blessings of the presence of the Lord. So it's living out our salvation it's how we, how we learn to do things. How do you learn? We talked about this last week when we were talking about discipline. How do you learn to play a musical instrument? You practice. And what's the practice? Well, initially, and even the professional musicians, the really good ones, they will spend hours and hours a day. First of all, first thing they will do is go over the scales endlessly, over and over those scales first thing they do, uh, repetition, uh, the rhythm that they get into. How do, you do, how do you learn to be good at sports? Uh, you practice. You practice that play over and over and over again. You don't even have to think about it. Once you see the play, then your muscles just respond because you've repeated it so often that the body responds, and you don't have to stop and think about it. Well, the ball, he hit that ball. I better run. <laughs> you, don't, you don't stop and think. You see it, and you're, you're, and you're, constant, and you're instantly moving because you've been trained. You, you go through that repeating. Uh, I know you guys do this repetition every day, every single one of us. Do you eat? Yeah. Do you breathe? Yeah, pretty regularly. <laughs> do you sleep? Sooner or later, you're going to. And it's going to be a repetitious thing, isn't it? You ever get bored with doing that? You ever say, well, I'm bored with this. I think I'll do something else. (laughs) It doesn't. Your life depends upon it. In the wilderness wanderings, 40 years, these um, Israelites were wandering in the wilderness under the judgment of God, under the sentence of death. Every one of that generation was going to die because of their disobedience and their rebelliousness against God. He'd already told them. But every day, the manna was there. Every day. Even people under God's judgment, God provided for. New Testament says, He causes the rain to fall upon the just and on the unjust. He he cares for all of us. And He will make those basic provisions. So where does our hope come from? Um, Our hope is not based on something that will happen when our suffering is over. That's not our hope. Our hope 
is on the real presence of God's healing spirit in the midst of the suffering. That's the hope. That's the Lord daily bearing our burdens. That's understanding His presence and His grace in our life day by day, each day, every day, rhythmically and without ceasing. What about Jesus? It's our disciplines that shapes our habits. So, in Isaiah chapter 50, he talks about um, God communicating with his servant. In this case, we would understand this to be the Messiah. We can start with verse 4, and we'll just read verses 4 and 5. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. How did he know that? Well, Jesus is God. But he walked this earth. He voluntarily set that aside and walked the earth as a spirit-filled man. So it says, He's given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. So you go to the New Testament, and you start reading about the habits of Jesus, what's going on in his life, the discipline that's going to direct and guide him. Many times as you read through the Gospels, Jesus stood up to read as was his custom. And so he regularly spent time in the Word of God. He knew the Word of God well. Again, he went out into the mountain to pray, as was his custom. And as you read particularly the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going oftentimes early in the morning. Sometimes it says while it's still dark, he gets off by himself to pray. Jesus is God's Son. Why does he need to pray? He's communing with the Father. He's receiving the wisdom from God to know what he's supposed to do that day and, and how to deal with whatever he finds. God does not micromanage our lives. That's a surprise to some of us. We like to do that with ourselves and everybody else. But God doesn't do that. God, because he created us in his image and likeness, gives us an incredible amount of freedom. But with the freedom comes the responsibility and the consequences, positively or negatively of those decisions. It's part of being free. And that's one of the things that we're giving away in our country right now. People will give away freedom for security. Uh, I want you to make the decision. I don't want to deal with the consequences and I don't want to have to worry about it. Just, you know, it's like the old Romans. We criticize them for bread and circus, you know, bread and gladiators, uh, bread and the... But if you, as long as you fed the, the populace and gave them entertainment, then you could do whatever you wanted as a government. And they did. And the people didn't care. Because they were being fed and they were being entertained. Kind of like our society today, isn't it? If I'm well fed and have something to entertain me, I'm good, man. And our freedoms are slipping away. So Jesus comes before the Lord. He draws from Him uh, what He needs. And then whatever faces him that day, he's prepared for. Uh, could be a demon-possessed boy when he comes down off of a prayer meeting. Um, he's ready. 
no panic there. Could be a crowd that wants to throw him off a cliff because they offended at what he's told them. Um, not a problem. He was ready uh, for whatever faced him because he had been in the presence of the Father on a regular basis. Again, he taught them again as was his custom. And so regularly, this is why we have the Gospels, he taught them, he passed on to others what he had received and what he had found in the presence of his Father. So we, uh, we learn about the Berean new converts in the book of Acts. When Paul was preaching, Paul and Silas were teaching, and Barnabas were teaching, every day, every day, daily, they went back and searched the scriptures to see if what they were saying was right or not on a daily basis. So these are the things that help us obtain the wisdom of the relationship. The result is in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's been talking about all the things that they've, he's been suffering. And he goes on in verse 16. He's talking about jars of clay, clay pots, he calls this, our bodies. And this is his conclusion to this section. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So he's talking about the renewal that comes to him, the spiritual refreshing, the streams that never end, that he receives fresh each day. That's the blessing. That's the, the flow of God's Spirit that comes when we turn from going our own way and choose to go in the way that God has chosen for us. So Paul, in his prayer recorded in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 17. Now he's praying this for the Christian people at the church at Ephesus and the surrounding area. So chapter 1, verse 17. This is Paul's prayer for the church. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. A spirit of revelation and understanding so that we may know the Lord better. Because that's what wisdom is, isn't it? Knowing and walking with him. Now the prophet Jeremiah, also in chapter 9, he's talking about boasting. And in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, this is what he says. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Mark says that when Jesus sat down 
uh, and decided to pick 12 men to be his apostles, the ones that will be sent out. He picked 12 men for two reasons. One, that they could be with him and that he could send them out. So the first thing was the wisdom that they would receive would be from being in his presence, being his disciples, being under his discipline, if you want to put it that way, of walking with him and knowing. That's where wisdom come from, comes from. And that's what Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians. So true wisdom comes from God alone. And this is what James was talking about earlier in James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Because when we walk in the presence of the Lord, that's when true humility occurs. True humility doesn't mean putting yourself down. It means understanding who you are in the presence of the Lord. Understanding that He has created us and we bear His image and likeness and Christ died for us. That's our value, our worth, our purpose in life and being. We are valuable in the sight of God because He created us and He loves us and He died to redeem us. And that's the only value that we need. And so uh, we don't think of ourselves more highly than we thought, than we ought to. Um, we understand who we are in the presence of the Lord, and we don't have to apologize to anybody for anything. It's not based on what we know. It's not based on what we do or can't do. It's not based on any of these other things, any other people's opinion about us. Our value is based on the presence of the Lord and His love for us. So we don't lose heart. We're being renewed day by day. This wisdom, this skill in living, I don't know how anyone can expect to live apart from God in this world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus told us very plainly, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what most of our society is about, isn't it? If you have something, the rest of the people want it, and they will do what it takes to get it. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and have it to the full. And in conclusion, I want to read the way that the book of Hosea concludes. Who is wise? He will realize these things. He who is discerning will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us, has become for us wisdom from God. And we pray, Father, that as we draw close to you, that there'll be an impartation of that life because of the presence of Christ in us and that we will know how to live in this world. Not tomorrow, but today. Help us, Lord, to set aside the things that we would grasp and clutch after like Eve. And help us to receive from your hand freely the gift of life and the gift of understanding that we might know you better and walk freely in your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.